The scripture reading will be from 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. 1 John 3, 13. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whatever, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit which he has given us. I'll pray. Again, God, just thank you so much for all that you've given us in Christ and through your word. Lord, I thank you that this is the the final revelation. It is the authority, God, for everything that we would ever think or experience or hear have taught to us. And I pray, God, that we would truly just be taught of your spirit as we look at your word together, that we'd be brought to Jesus, God, and that your work in us would be done as you would please. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be back with you. It feels like it's been forever. Um, three weeks ago, we were not here um, because our granddaughter um, um, was stillborn, and so we were down in Lake Jackson for the funeral. And then the next week, um, I had been scheduled to go to Canada um, for meetings, and then um, I did that, was there for a little over a week, and then we were, um, Patsy's mother, that would make her my mother-in-law, had her 90th birthday, and so we went to Pennsylvania to celebrate her birthday, and um, I was asked to preach um, while I was there as well. So it's been a busy three weeks. It was potluck last time I was here, it's potluck again, so it seems like all we do is eat around here, but... Um, <laughs> Anyway, I do appreciate um, the church's support and love, prayers for our family, especially for Nathan and Davina over these last months, and, and um, it's meant a lot to us, and we have all felt very much sustained by your prayers, and appreciate it greatly. Um, you may remember, if you have a better memory than I, um, that I did this scripture reading um, four weeks ago, and um, but I, as I looked at my sermon notes, I'm thinking, did I preach this passage? And my memory's getting bad. And so I asked my wife, and she could not remember me preaching this passage. So I asked Catchy, because Catchy takes great notes. She didn't remember me preaching this passage. And I asked my dad, well, what's the point? At? But anyway, I might, <laughs> you get where this is going. And so everybody remembered me preaching Verses 10 through 12, but not 
the rest of the chapter, but I actually did. I just didn't do a very good job at it. Um, and so I need to go over this again, even maybe it's redundant for you. Hopefully it won't be. Uh, maybe it should be. I don't know what to even think. But anyway, this is a great passage of Scripture here. And if you've heard it before, um, I trust you need it again, because <laughs> I obviously do. And uh, it's new to me, <laughs> even if it's not to you. <laughs> um, one of the things, again, that John has just been so clear on, and he's really, again, the theme of 1 John is not salvation, but it is abiding in Christ. He starts out this chapter, remember, he says that I want you to have fellowship with us even as we have fellowship with God. And so that's fellowship is based on, on are we abiding in Christ or not? He's not questioning here that these people are saved, but you can be saved and not fellowshipping with God. That's the point of this chapter. He wants believers to be living in the relationship that we've been saved to live in, to fellowship with God who's made us and saved us. And that comes through abiding in Him. And as we abide in Christ, His righteousness will be displayed through us. And so he mentions that in this chapter, verses 10, 11, and 12. He talks about that righteousness. And then in doing so, he moves into the subject of love. And he says, not only will the righteousness of Christ be, be portrayed through us, but we will love one another even as Christ has loved us. And not like Cain loved his brother Abel. And I remember, do remember this, that I made the point about Cain that John's not trying to tell us whether Cain was saved or not. Um, it would seem that maybe he was not. Most people would say he was not, but that's not John's point. John's point is that these two biological brothers, one hated the other. And in Christ, your spiritual brother, which in fact is a stronger bond than the biological bond, you, it is possible to hate your spiritual brother. And he says, but that is not what happens when you abide in Christ. When you're abiding in him, you will hate, I'm sorry, you will love the people who hate you. Even though they hate you and they may hate you without cause, you will love them because Christ loves through us. God is love and God gave his son in love for this world, even his enemies. In fact, Romans 5 says, while we were yet the enemies of God, God demonstrates his love for us by giving his son to die for us. And so it also says in Romans 8 that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. So God is love. He demonstrates his love by loving even his enemies. And the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And so that all being said, we can expect that when we abide in Christ, we will supernaturally Love those who hate us. It's not even a choice. It's just what God is doing to express himself through us. Sometimes we'll be surprised at this because it is unnatural. And we're saying we can look at ourselves and go, this isn't me. To love somebody who has been mean and vindictive and angry toward me. And I go, and yet. My heart is filled with love for this person. Only God can take credit for that. It's not something we can do. It is the, if there's anything natural about it, it is God naturally expressing himself through us, but it is supernatural to you and me. So verse 13, 
Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. Why would we marvel at the world hating us? Satan is the god of this world, and Satan hates God, and certainly he hates the people of God. So why would I marvel if the world hates me? Well, because we don't deserve it, right? And this is why, I mean, we've all had this experience in life. There will be people that we come across who are not under the influence of the Spirit of God in that, in that they are not allowing Christ to live from them. It may be a Christian. It may be an unbeliever. And they hate us. And we go, I've done nothing but good to this person. I've never done anything but help this person. My every thought toward this person is for their good. And yet they despise the ground that I stand on. What is going on here? Well, we shouldn't marvel. Jesus says, if the world hates me, it will hate you as well. But we do marvel because we're going, I love this person. I love my unbelieving fellow workers. I love my neighbors who don't know Christ. And yet they hate me in return. Don't marvel, John says. We are not of this world. And the world hates the light. Darkness hates light. Now, thankfully, there will be a few individuals who, who because they are moving toward the light, they may not even know they're, being moved, they're, they're moving toward the light, but because they're moving toward the light, they're not all going to hate us. There are going to be individuals in the world who want what we want. Thank God for that. But there are going to be others who hate us. I heard for the first time when, I was, when we were back in Pennsylvania um, some details about the death of one of Patsy's aunts. And it was a, a tragic, untimely death. Um, she was just out in her driveway. This happened probably I mean, oh, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, I forget. But she, um, the car began moving and she tried to stop the car. Big mistake. Car rolled over her and crushed her. And her daughter-in-law was the first one to find her. And it just within minutes, seconds maybe of it happening, her daughter-in-law came out and saw it, and it was a horrible, horrible sight. And understandably, she just went hysterical, screaming. And almost a quarter mile away, where some of her family members were working, they heard the screaming, and they came all rushing down to see what had happened, and they found um, Patsy's aunt dead under the car. Well, EMS showed up, and this is the part of the story I'd never heard. One of those EMTs that came out gave his life to Christ because he'd never seen a family respond to something the way they did. And, I don't, and all I heard was the hysterics, but that wasn't the whole story. Hysterics is not an unnatural response, but we don't grieve like the world grieves. And we can be very emotional, even hysterical. But there's still the peace of God in our hearts. And we know God doesn't make mistakes. And all things happen for a reason. And God works all things together for good. There's hope, an eternal hope that cannot be taken away. And that family knew that their mom, absolute certainty, that mom is in the presence of Jesus. And I don't know what that man saw, but it brought him back around asking questions. And he gave his life to Jesus. Well, thank the Lord for that. One man. 
But that's not often the way that it is. More typically, the world hates us for the good that they see. I heard a preacher one time saying, make no mistake about it. Jesus was crucified because he was good. They killed Jesus because there was something wrong in him. They killed him because he was good. And they hated the goodness they saw. Do not marvel, brethren, when the world hates you. It may not even know why it hates you. But there's a spiritual thing going on. I think sometimes God puts us in these situations where we are hated for no reason that we could ever point to. Because God wants us to know we are not of this world. And the only explanation for what's going on is spiritual. And God says, they hated Jesus. They will hate you. You are not of this world. And then he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Because the world hates us. Is that what it says? No. We know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So yes, the world will hate us if we belong to Jesus and we are walking with him. But what is proof in my own experience that I am not living in death is not that I'm hated by the world, but that I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the proof that something has happened in me. Now, he's not saying, again, this is proof that we are saved. Because you can be saved and hate your brother. But this is proof, loving your brother is proof not that you're saved, but that you are walking in life, that you are experiencing life. And the only way for that to happen is to abide in Christ. Paul uses different language than abiding. Again, abide, that word is unique to John. Paul uses the language of presenting ourselves to him, of yielding ourselves to him, of walking according to the Spirit. So in Romans 8, Paul says, if you, a Christian, walk according to the flesh, you must die. But if you, a Christian, walk according to the Spirit, you will live. So he's talking about people that are already saved. But he's saying the only way to experience the life that you've been given when you came to Christ is to yield yourself to him, to present yourself to him. As John says, to abide in him. And when you do, you will be experiencing life, not death. And one evidence of that is you will find yourself loving people who hate you. And you're going, how did this happen? It's life. It's the life of Jesus being manifest in us supernaturally as we simply abide. And if we're not loving, it's because we're not abiding in Christ. We are rather abiding in death. He who does not love abides in death. Saved. Memory says, brethren, do not marvel, brethren, never questioning these people's salvation. But brethren, if you're not loving, it's not your brother's problem. It's your problem. 
you are abiding in death. If you aren't loving the people in your life, don't blame the people in your life. You aren't abiding in Christ. You're abiding in death. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's not a new thought. Jesus says the same in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. If you hate your brother, you have already committed murder in your heart. Everyone who hates his brother, so again, he's speaking to Christians here. Can Christians hate their brothers? Yes, they can hate their brothers. Do we acknowledge it? Many times we don't. It's a long time ago that I preached through Matthew, and I don't normally ask for a show of hands, but I did that Sunday when we got to this passage about hating your brother. And I started out the sermon, and I said, I'd like to see a show of hands of anybody in this room who knows someone who is a murderer. And there are a couple of hands that went up. And at the end of the sermon, I said, I'd like to see a show of hands. Does anybody in this room know somebody who is a murderer? And every hand in the room went up. Because we're all guilty of hating a brother at one time or another. Murder. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Okay, I get that. And you know that no murderer, now I'm going to revert to the NIV here, the New International Version, no murderer has eternal life in him. Terrible translation. They leave out the word abide. I don't know why. Bad translation. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You can be a Christian and murder your brother. If you don't think that that is true, you're not being honest with your own heart. But you cannot hate your brother while abiding in Christ. You cannot murder your brother while abiding in Christ. That's the point. Eternal life is not controlling you. Eternal life is Jesus. John's going to say that in the next chapter. Jesus Christ is eternal life. And the one who has Christ has eternal life. So he equates the two. So if I'm abiding in Christ, then I will not murder my brother because Jesus is not a murderer. Now you remember... There's no, there's no, there are no formulas in Scripture. And I've already, since we started this series on 1 John, I, I, more than once I, I, I've had someone ask me, how do you abide? Obviously, that is the linchpin of this whole book. How then do you abide? And I was in a conversation, and again, I'm losing my mind, so I don't remember who it was, was with, but... Someone else who heard the question said, God doesn't tell us. Because if he did tell us, we would make a formula out of it. There is no formula for how to abide. God simply wants us to live in it and begin to experience, to figure this out, as it were, on our own. So let me give you a bad illustration that I used a long time ago. And I used it last week when I was in Pennsylvania. So I keep using bad illustrations. It's kind of like learning how to kiss. 
Bad illustration. All right, why am I, you know, come to church on Sunday and get a lesson on kissing. Okay? <laughs> when you've never kissed somebody, all you can think about is how you don't want to mess it up when it's the first time. Right? You're going, can't somebody just explain this to me? Is there a book I can read? How, you know, and, and there's just, there's no, there's, all you can do is do it and figure it out. And then you figure out, you know, it's, it's not that complicated. And, you know, I didn't need a book. I didn't, I'm so glad I didn't ask anybody. That would have been really embarrassing. But you know how it was before you had kissed somebody for the first time? How much time you gave to thinking about it and worrying about it and wondering if you're going to be a failure at it? In fact, after I used this illustration the last time years ago, one of the men who's here today told me that he was a moment of honesty and transparency, and I appreciate it. I've never forgotten. And he says, Charlie, I used to kiss my pillow at night, just trying to make sure I knew you know, how to learn this and how to, how to do that. And I thought, that's great, man. I was an honest brother in Christ. And um, somebody told me one time he used to drink slowly over a water fountain, so he can kind of, you know, is it anything like that? The point of the illustration is you don't need any lessons on how to kiss. You just need to venture forth and do it. It's the same thing with abiding. We have been placed in Christ, and Christ has been placed in us. Can anybody fully explain what that means? No. Can anybody walk you through the steps of how to abide? You don't need it, even if they could. Obviously, this is something the Lord just wants us to enter into by faith. And we, just, we say to the Lord, God, everything here is about abiding. And I'm not even sure I know what that means. But God, you obviously think this is important. So Lord, teach me what it means to abide. Let this become the experience of my life. That I know what it means to come to you and let you live your life in me and through me. That's what John's getting at here. So there's an assumption that we don't need to know the mechanics. We come to Jesus. It's a living, personal, individual relationship with him. And we say, Jesus, teach me these things. Work these things out in me. And he will. Verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. So he's going to get very practical in what love is. And and the point is, it's not just sentimental. It is not merely emotional. Now, there's nothing wrong with being sentimental and emotional. I remember when my grandfather passed away, and then years later, my, my grandmother, this is my dad's mom and dad, my grandmother sold the house and all of its contents and didn't tell my dad or any of the grandkids what she was doing. We were so disappointed. I mean, she sold everything for nothing. She sold the dining room table, beautiful dining room table and chairs. She sold my grandfather's narrow brim, short brim Stetson hats, which I would love to have one of his hats today. And, I mean, everything, she just, just, neighbors came over and just cleaned it all out, literally. Many years later, my little brother went back down to Harlingen and walked around to all the neighbors, just seeing if any of the old neighbors still lived there in that neighborhood, knocked on one door and introduced himself to this lady, and she says, I've been waiting for one of you McCall boys to come back around. 
This is like 20 years later or something. And she said, your, your grandmother was, the, was a wonderful, wonderful person and a dear friend, but that woman did not have a sentimental bone in her body. And I saw all that she was doing with, with, with her stuff and your grandfather's stuff. She says, I, I bought that table knowing that one day one of you kids would come around wanting that table. She said, I even kept his pipes thinking that one day one of you kids would want just to have those pipes sitting on your mantle at your house. And so my little brother got all that stuff. What a dear, thoughtful person. There's nothing wrong with being sentimental, but love is much more than being sentimental. Much more. In fact, if we are too sentimental, we won't even do what this is talking about. Because we can take too, we put too much love in the things and never think about giving those things up to others. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay it down our lives for the brethren. Amen. Jesus gave his life for us. I should be willing to give my life to anybody. Amen. But am I willing to get up and take out the trash? Am I willing to help clean up after people have been in the home? It's practical. And so now he gets practical. Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So, so practical. Anybody can say, well, I love my brother. Really? Would you give your life for him? Oh, yeah, I'd give my life for him. Really? Would you give your money to him? Would you give your time to him? Would you give your cherished possessions to him? When my older brother died, I inherited a lot of his clothing. I guess because I was the next one in line, not because they fit. And, um, and I took them all to Bible college with me. And I had a closet jam-packed full of my clothing and his clothing. And one day, I'm walking out of the dormitory, and there's this this um, retired couple walking into the school with bags full of clothing. And I, and I stopped them and, and, and I said, can I help you? And they said, yeah, we're looking for so-and-so, a guy that lived in the dorm. And I go, well, I can show you where he lives. And I said, just out of curiosity, why are you bringing all this clothing? And they said, well, he's a missionary kid and it came to our attention that he doesn't even have a change of clothes. Well, and I've got a closet packed full of clothes. And well, I knew immediately what I had to do. And so I went and found the guy, and I brought him down to my room, and I opened up the closet, and I said, take whatever you want. And I said, I don't know. I said, I've been wondering why God gave all this stuff to me, because I don't need it. Take whatever you want. And he didn't take everything, but he took, and it's like, only God could do this. He, there were only two things in that closet that I really wanted to keep of my brothers. <laughs> and guess what he took? Both of those things. And I'm just going, this is crazy. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah. And he takes that down jacket, takes that flannel shirt out. And I'm just going, no way. But I knew I couldn't. I, and and on now, now I'm beginning to see how sentimentality can get in the way of practical love. Do I love my brother? And I'd see him walking around campus, and he was a big, tall, string pole of a guy. Now, those clothes didn't fit me well. They really didn't fit him. You know, and they're way too short in the sleeves, and I'm going, should be my shirt. <laughs> and I can lose the victory here in the joy of what God did. 
You can walk in the Spirit one second according to the Spirit, and the next second be walking according to the devil. This is what was, Peter was guilty of. In one second, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter says, God revealed this to you. Next paragraph, you can't die. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. First paragraph, God's told you this. Next paragraph, Satan's talking to you. And we can be the same. We can walk according to the Spirit. We can walk according to the flesh. We can experience life. We can experience death from one moment to the next, depending on where we are abiding. Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Anybody can say they love. It needs to be practical. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him and whatever our heart condemns us for God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. Now this is so important here to this whole section. We shall know by this practical love for our brethren even when they hate us. This, that kind of practical supernatural love assures our heart that we are, in fact, abiding in Christ. This is not assurance of salvation because the assurance of my salvation has nothing to do with what I do. This is assuring my heart that I am walking in fellowship with him. I am sure of my salvation because of what Jesus has done, because of who Jesus is, not because of anything I have done. But the evidence of my salvation is when I abide in Christ. I was talking through this passage with our staff this week at His Hill. And it came to mind a quote that I just read by Mark Twain. And Mark Twain said, The more I get to know people, the better I like my dog. And then he said, another quote regarding dogs, he says, if heaven were based upon merit, dogs would go to heaven and not people. Because dogs are often better than people are. Dogs will love us unconditionally. That's supernatural when it comes from you and me. But my... Standing before God is not based upon my merit. It's based on Christ's merit. And to God, the blood of Jesus Christ has completely satisfied him. God has been propitiated, as he said in 1 John chapter 2. It's done. God is satisfied. And whether I feel it or not, it remains unchanged. God has accepted me. Because he accepts the blood of Jesus Christ. So my heart may not assure me. My heart may condemn me when I read these very things here that I'm supposed to love as Christ loves. Well, I'm not doing that. And my heart condemns me. In a sense, it should. But let me be careful with that. Proverbs says the one who trusts his heart is a fool. So I have a student that comes to me and says, Charlie, I'm in love. 
and I know this is the person God wants me to marry. How do you know this is the person God wants you to marry? Because I'm in love. That's it. One more is there. And Proverbs says, the one who trusts his heart is a fool. You can love the wrong person. When it comes to right standing before God, I don't trust my conscience. I don't trust my heart. I trust Jesus. My right standing before God is not because of anything I do or don't do. It is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Some people have an extremely sensitive conscience and it is always condemning them. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're outside of Jesus, there's condemnation. But if you are in Christ and Christ is in you because you've placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, there is no condemnation. You can be taken 10 steps backwards for every step you take forward. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that Romans 8, 1 verse is, is a verse written not just about salvation. In fact, it's not even about salvation. It is about sanctification. And that's where as Christians we feel the condemnation. Our heart in the sanctification process condemns us. Because we don't see this being fleshed out in our lives consistently as we would choose. But we are not condemned. We are in Christ. And therefore, we are well accepted by God because Jesus is the basis of the acceptance. So our heart may condemn us, but God is greater than our heart. And he knows all things. He knows we fall short. He knows we don't abide 100% of the time. He's greater than our heart, and he doesn't condemn us. Praise God. If I could just sometimes just open up somebody's head and pour this in, and sometimes I wish somebody would do it to me. This is such profound truth. If your heart is condemning you, God is greater than your heart. He does not condemn you because the blood of Jesus Christ completely satisfies God's just demands concerning us. We are forgiven. We are cleansed. And as 1 John 1 says, as we confess our sins, he continues to cleanse us of our sins. And in whatever, and then he goes on and he says, Beloved, verse 21, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. But the confidence is not in a heart that doesn't condemn us, I would venture to say, because Paul talked about a similar thing where he says, he says, I, he says my conscience is clear. But he says, but in, I am not acquitted by this. Because you can have a clear conscience and you can have an uncondemning heart and that doesn't mean you have right standing with God. Our right standing, again, is not based upon our heart. It's based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is the basis of our confidence. And it is true when Jesus shows up again, if, he were, if we were to be raptured right now at this moment, 
I would hope that all of us could enter into his presence and not shrink away in shame. John's already spoken about not having confidence in the day of Jesus. So the confidence, the experiential confidence does come in that simple trusting, abiding in Christ. I'm not confident in my abiding. I am confident in Christ. And that confidence is, is, is made sure as I abide. But my confidence is not in my faith. And my confidence is not in abiding. All the way through from beginning to end, our confidence is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. As we abide, verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because again, why wouldn't we receive everything we ask if we're not abiding? Because not abiding is a picture of a broken fellowship. And God wants things to be right with, with, between us and him. Experientially, practically, daily, moment by moment. Positionally, it's already right. But if I'm not living in unbroken fellowship with God, the most important thing God has is not answering my prayer. The most important thing on God's heart for me is to walk in fellowship with Him. And why would He answer all my prayers if I'm living in a broken fellowship with God? Because all it's going to do is enforce my walking in unbroken fellowship. I'm going to think everything is like it should be. So Jesus says in John 15 that you will bear much fruit if you abide. And then in that same passage, he says, you will ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. So it appears that the much fruit is in relation to not the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, but the fruit of answered prayer. Because you're living in that intimate, personal, abiding relationship with Jesus and talking to Jesus is the most natural thing in the world. And so when the scripture says, as it does in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing, you go, that's not a problem. Because you know what it is to live in that unbroken fellowship with God where your every breath is prayer to God. You're hearing from God and speaking to God. It's just a back and forth reciprocal relationship that, that again, you can't even explain to somebody else, but you're living in it and you know it's true. And answered prayer doesn't even become, as it were, a big deal anymore because you're already living in that constant fellowship with God where prayer is just simply that communication with Him and you're not having to even live trying to pinpoint answered prayers because you're living in prayer and you're seeing God work through you. But here again, it is the promise of God as we abide that we can ask whatever and receive from Him. We will also keep His commandments, and we will do the things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is the, and He puts it in the singular, and He's going to give two commandments. And so obviously they're never meant to be separated. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Now, yes, we have to Believe in Jesus to be saved. Amen. But we are to believe in Jesus every moment of every day. It's not, yes, it's a once and done thing for salvation. But God never intended it to be a once and done thing. He wants our faith in Christ to be a continual expression of relationship with Him. 
I'm not trusting in myself. I'm trusting in you, Jesus. I'm not depending upon myself. I'm not depending upon others. I'm not depending on my bank account. I'm depending upon you, Jesus. We live in that life of believing in Jesus. John doesn't, as John tries to work out what belief is, he says it is receiving of Christ. He says it is drinking of Christ. It is eating of Christ. He just uses all these different synonyms for saying this is what faith looks like. And it is his command. Christians, Christians, you and I are commanded to believe in Jesus. Not just in the past, but today. Am I today believing in Jesus? With all the stuff that's going on in the world, as bad as it's getting, am I believing in Jesus? Christians need to be encouraged to believe in Jesus. Amen? I'm telling you. Christians need to be encouraged to believe in Jesus. And as we believe in Jesus, we will also love one another. Because Christ is free to express himself through us. And God is love. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know, obedience to his commandments, by this we know he abides in us. By the Spirit. Why would that tell me that he abides in me? Because I can't keep his commandments apart from the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, where the new covenant is described. I've gone over Many times, and he, and, he, and, he, and he says here, you're going to be cleansed of your sin, you're going to be given a new heart, you're going to be given a new spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be given to you, and He will cause you to obey. So let's be honest. If we are obedient from the heart to the things that God is telling us to do, it is because of God's Spirit within us. Because no one can be obedient from the heart to God. We are, in our hearts, apart from Christ, rebels, dead in our sins and trespasses, separated from God. The only way that a person can move from disobedience to obedience is for the Spirit of God to come and live within him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given to us. So many Christians are just unsure of their salvation should never question our salvation. If Jesus Christ is who he says he is and has done what he has said that he has done, then to question our salvation is to question his integrity because he is who he is and he will do what he has said that he has done. We may question whether his life is being expressed through us or not, but that has nothing to do with whether or not we are saved. And that simply comes down to, again, trusting Jesus. Abide in Christ. Trust in Him. Present yourself to Him. And He will evidence in our lives His very life. So in summary, and this is how I know I went through this passage. I didn't go through much of it because I spent most of the time on the front end of it before. But I did give you this summary. As we abide in Christ and He in us, He will manifest through us His righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 10. His love for the brethren. An effective prayer life where we see prayers being answered. 
obedience to his command to believe in Christ and to love one another. And he will manifest through us the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Brethren, don't trust your heart. If your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. If your heart excuses you, you trust in God, not in your heart. All he wants us to do is to trust him. Believe in Jesus. And you will love the brethren. I'll close this in prayer. Thank you, God, for the clarity of your word. Thank you, God, for your sufficiency to accomplish in us all that we are reading about. That it does not have to be academic. And nor do we have to be frustrated, God, with our lack of knowledge of how to do these things, how to appropriate it. That you would have us, even in that, to come to you in dependence and in faith and say, Jesus, I don't even know how to abide. But God, I thank you that as we step to you, towards you in faith, that you will make these things reality within us. It's not complicated to yield, to present ourselves to you. And I thank you, God, for your willingness to completely express yourself supernaturally by your Spirit in each of us. And Jesus is truly our hope. He is our hope of salvation, and He is our hope in sanctification. And He is the hope of glory. In Christ's name, amen.